This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. 4.6 billion. The Earth forms. Cambrian. 542 million. Complex life explodes. Permian Triassic. 251 million. 90% of species die. Cretaceous tertiary. 65 million. Meteor kills the dinosaurs. 55 million. Primates appear. 2.3 million. Pleistocene. 200,000. Humans appear. 20,000. Agricultural revolution. Industrial revolution. Great acceleration. The Anthropocene. Welcome to Generation Anthropocene, the program where we ask the question, what does it mean to be living in the new geologic age? I'm your host, Mike Osborne, and today's interview is with literary critic Ursula Heise. Stay with us. My name is Aaron Strong, and I'm a PhD student in the Emmett Interdisciplinary Program in Environment and Resources at Stanford University, and today I'll be speaking with Professor Ursula Heise. Professor Heise is a professor in the English department and is also an affiliated faculty with the Stanford Woods Institute for the Environment. And Professor Heise is a literary critic whose work focuses on environmental literature. Her books include Sense of Place and Sense of Planet, The Environmental Imagination of the Global, And her recent attention has turned to the analysis of the problem of biodiversity loss and extinction. Ursula, welcome, and thanks for coming in. Pleasure to be here. So where do you think your own environmental values come from? I was not an environmentalist when I grew up. And um, my life was changed in the mid-1990s by um, the purchase of an exotic species of parrot, a Jardines parrot. I had long been sort of fascinated with with um, parrots in particular, not even really birds in general. And so I brought this four-month-old parrot into my household, um, and both my partner at the time and myself were simply bowled over by her energy, her intelligence, her very quickly developing ability to manipulate us to do exactly what she wanted. And this was a watershed for both of us in the sense that it changed our mind about what animals are. It made me look at the pigeons outside my window in Manhattan with a completely different eye. And from there, I became interested in birds and bird watching, in migratory patterns. And then that led me to the environment and to how we relate to other species, not all of whom are quite as charismatic as Michiko the Jardines parrot was, um, but who nevertheless are, in a sense, our others and ourselves who go into us, whom we eat, whom we live with, um, 
whom we coexist with and whom we depend on in any number of ways. And I think animal, a love of animals is an under, underestimated resource for environmentalist thinking. You work on literature and the environment uh, broadly and um, specifically as a, a literary critic. And I'm just curious, what do you do all day? I can imagine one way where you, you start with a book and you, you read a book and let's say it's a, a science fiction book and there's a really interesting treatment of genetic engineering in the future and you say, hey, that's really interesting. I'd like to, like to work on that. Or do you, you know, read the scientific literature or pay attention to what's being talked about and say, hey, there's this big scientific problem that's come up and how is that problem being treated in, in literature and, 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 and by culture and society? So how do you, how do you start working and, and pick a project to work on? Part of um, developing a new research project comes out of just reading a lot of new work, in my case, since I'm in contemporary um, literature and culture, and uh, being aware of how it fits into certain histories and seeing what take does it develop on these current issues. What kinds of narrative and narratives and metaphors are being deployed to talk about certain current issues? Then sometimes it can come from the other direction, as you indicated, that I read something in science or in nature, and I wonder, hmm, how is a certain structure of thinking about the natural world or about the biological body reflected in aesthetic forms? Um, so it, it goes both ways, really. Um, and then once you start on a project, um, my projects usually involve a part of science, a part of social science, and a part of humanities. You go back and forth. And that, to me, is one of the really great pleasures of being in this field because, you know, you read science one day, science fiction the next day, poetry the day after that, um, environmentally activist literature in the afternoon, and so on. So it's really very different kinds of approaches that you that you take in. And then you watch a documentary um, in the evening or you go to a photography exhibit. From your point of view, what is the relationship between these, these cultural narratives and depictions of scientific problems and the problems themselves? You know, are they, are they separate? Um, how, do they, how do they interact and how do they relate? And maybe we can, you know, pick an example of biodiversity loss, for example, something you've been working on. Well, I think uh, for those of us who are in literary and cultural studies, it's clear that there are ecological problems out there. Those exist. We have created them, and they exist independently of us. But they only become socially and culturally meaningful through particular narratives and metaphors. So you can trace this back to just about any stage of environmentalist thought over the last 200 years. So, you know, in the Romantic Age, at the turn of the 19th century, um, it becomes imbricated with certain worries about the body and what that might become in technology, expressed, of course, most signally in Mary Shelley's novel Frankenstein, which has had so much influence on environmentalist thought, um, all the way to something like Rachel Carson's Silent Spring, which very much drew on the imagery of nuclear war and nuclear weapons and radiation fallout to make socially relevant something that nobody was really thinking about outside of the scientific community in those 
those days. So what does Carson do? Well, she takes something that the public did have very vivid images and stories attached to, which is, you know, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, the um, the whole swath of Hollywood B-movies in the 1950s that all depicted mutant ants and other creatures that come out of radioactive mutation, out of labs, run out of control. Those things were being discussed in the public. So she takes that vocabulary to make clear what the very real medical chemical dangers of these toxins are and you can you can follow this up into climate change discourse and into biodiversity loss which as you've mentioned is something that i'm extremely interested in so i spent um about a year and a half or two years just reading hundreds of articles, books, and books on um, endangered species, either individual endangered species or the global panorama of biodiversity loss. And I have to tell you, I came out of it, by and large, completely depressed. These are very depressing books. And so... I became interested, of course, in what is the science. And once you read the science, you also find that narrative. But interestingly, the facts are a lot fuzzier than the narrative would suggest. So some of the things that struck me as a literary scholar were the fact that scientists find it indispensable to think about the natural world in terms of species, but they don't have an agreed-upon concept of species that works for all taxa. The concept of biodiversity is even more dicey. Even ascertaining that a certain species is endangered or, in fact, that it is extinct is not as easy as you might believe. I mean, okay, we know that the dinosaurs are gone because that was a long time ago, and if they were still around, you'd see them. You know, we're sure that the dodo is gone. But to pick a recent example, we're a lot less sure that we know whether the ivory-billed woodpecker is definitively gone. Nobody has seen it, or so we think, since 1944. But again and again, there have been sightings, often unsubstantiated. So certifying extinction in and of itself becomes a complicated process when we're dealing with contemporary species. Um, so all of these issues then become, you know, they, they are a lot more uncertain than the public discourse about biodiversity loss. So that's where then narratives, images, metaphors come in. So I'm going to ask kind of a, a, a blunt question. Why do in endangered species matter? Why should it matter if a species is extinct or not? Does it really matter if it was an ivory-billed woodpecker that we define as a species or, um, or a pileated woodpecker? It's still, it's still a bird in a swamp. So, so why do these species matter? <laughs> um, well, we should say, first of all, that some species matter a great deal more than others. So the entire discourse about biodiversity is highly biased towards certain species and certain taxa. The focus is on the charismatic megafauna, which in the case of endangered species means um, highly charismatic mammals such as um, primates, bears, wolves, rhinos, 
Uh, then there are a few other taxa. Birds are extremely popular, especially when they're large and beautiful. Raptors, parrots, um, and the ivory bill, of course, which is a huge woodpecker with a very striking appearance. Then yet when you move down to other vertebrates, to the amphibians, reptilians, and fishes, uh, attention gets a lot more spotty. Nobody talks that much about reptiles, let alone fishes. And once you move outside of the area of, of vertebrates, coverage gets a lot more spotty. And it gets more spotty for a number of different reasons. One is the difficulty of assessing the status of certain species. How do you know, for example, that a particular kind of fly is endangered or whether it's faring well? It's just a lot harder to do the count. But apart from that... The other reason that we focus especially on vertebrates and among them especially on mammals and on on birds is that these are species that are culturally significant. So when we talk about the ivory bill, yeah, you're right. Why does it matter? Most people can tell a pileated woodpecker from an ivory bill anyway. So why are we so worked up about this? Well, part of the reason is that the ivory bill has become an icon for a whole landscape in the American South that vanished in the second half of the 19th and the first half of the 20th century. So these huge cypress forests were logged at an, for us now, almost unimaginable scale. So that's sort of something on the order of a national trauma. It's maybe maybe too strong a term, but a national memory that, that resonates very deeply. And along with that, also the self-conception of the U.S. as nature's nation. What matters is not really so much the burden itself as the disappearance of a whole landscape and a whole cultural self-understanding. And that's where I think the study of narratives and images is so important because you can trace that um, across the world. You can trace that in a, in a lot of stories about endangered and extinct species that they become talked about and they become culturally resonant when they become part of the stories that particular cultures tell about their own history. And very often with these recently extinct species, what's at stake is a history of modernization. So thinking about a species that's recently gone extinct or like the polar bear that's not yet extinct but that we're driving to the brink of extinction really becomes a way of thinking more broadly about who we are. Um, and, and when extinct species or endangered species become much talked about, what we as literary and cultural critics look for is what are the larger resonances that make that a concern to a lot of people who, if you sent them out there, probably would not be able to tell a pileated woodpecker from, from an ivory bill. In your description that you've just given us, the, the science is complicated, but then the narrative kind of allows that science to, to matter culturally and is created by the culture. And, exactly. You, know, mm -hmm. uh, you have your story of Rachel Carson really bringing the kind of complex chemistry of, of the problems of toxics and DDT into a narrative that could be understood by, by um, the American public. But one thing you said made me think that it might go the other way sometimes, that scientists talking about biodiversity actually use that narrative when they do their science. So what's, what's the back end of this? How much do these narratives shape the way that science itself is done? They shape it 
To some extent. Um, when you look at current research on conservation and on endangered species, some of the bias that you find in popular discussions of biodiversity also shapes the research. So we have a lot more research on mammals and birds. So the way in which research is funded drives scientists toward certain species at the expense of others. And scientists, of course, grow up in the same culture that everybody else grows up in. And so it's no surprise to find that there is a huge number of scientists who are interested in birds and a relatively more restricted number of scientists who work on fungi. Um, now, sometimes, you know, that, that doesn't map completely. But so certainly there is a way in which scientists themselves, in terms of the objects that they choose, that they're interested in, and in terms of the objects that they can most easily find funding for, find their research shaped by some of the same cultural impulses that the discussion at, at large is. And when scientists communicate, these narratives are very prominent. Um, and they're more prominent, I would say, when scientists try to communicate with the general public. When you read the actual scientific literature, often the narrative is more nuanced and it doesn't as readily boil down to, say, a narrative of decline or a narrative of catastrophe. That's why I was saying to some extent, I do not think that the science is entirely conditioned by the culture. I think there's important ways in which the, the science actually modifies and changes and corrects in some ways um, the culture, but it's not as if the science is free from the cultural context. We hear a lot that scientists are poor communicators and don't do a good job, um, you know, communicating um, why what they study matters, why their findings are important to people. Do you think that's true, that scientists are poor communicators? I don't think that you can generally say that scientists are poor communicators, especially in the United States. I find it actually striking as somebody who grew up in Germany, how much popular science there is here, not just biology, but also um, physical cosmology. I mean, books about the origins of the universe, books about quantum theory, books such as Brian Greene's about string theory, you know, which is one of the most abstract and hard to understand areas of science for the layperson, all have seen major popular science publications. So I think it's actually astonishing how much science, and not just the science that you would predict and that is closest to people's everyday concerns, but really big and abstract science actually do find a, a, a popular audience. Um, so I don't think that scientists are poor communicators. Um, the other question you asked is a more complicated one. What more could science do to bring scientific facts to the general public? It seems to me it depends on what our expectation is. Um, I'm not sure if your question is about something like climate change. Would better communication of the science change the public's mind? I'm not sure that that's true. I think actually that the facts are well known to anybody who wants to know them. Um, there the problem is what kinds of cultural filters make the processing of those scientific facts and their translation into policies and different ways of thinking about nature possible. But climate change, more than biodiversity loss, pollution, or other really central um, uh, environmental problems, in the U.S., 
has seen a campaign of disinformation where big oil and big coal deliberately put narratives and uh, scientists out there who would claim that actually um, the, the science of climate change was insubstantial. So I think the problems of public communication in the case of climate change are actually quite specific and they're very different from the communication of, say, endangered species where there isn't really a group out there that's outright denying that that's happening. There's just a huge public indifference and inertia that you have to contend with. Well, so I think you hit the nail on the head that my question was, was in fact, about climate change, um, which is certainly the elephant in the room right now. And, and I want to talk a little bit about uh, the narratives and the words that we, we use to um, to describe uh, climate change and, and action on climate change. And it seems to me, um, you know, just looking around, you you hear a radio ad that says, oh, I take public transportation because it's good for the environment um, or the, the Prius is an environmentally friendly car. Um, and people are always talking about sustainability and their carbon footprint. But all of these things, even the word environment itself seems like it's, it's come to mean related to climate change or greenhouse gas emissions. And how do you react to that? What does the word mean environment now when people are talking about it? And how do the ways in which we talk about sustainability and the environment and, and, and carbon footprints and climate change um, affect the, the public perception of climate change? So one kind of genre that a lot of climate change discourse mobilizes and that relies on is apocalyptic narrative. So apocalyptic narrative originally comes from Revelations, the last book of the Bible. In that book, the second coming of Christ is preceded by sort of the end of the world, such as we know it, and by um, large-scale catastrophes. Now, in Revelations, that um, that apocalypse is brought by by God, and there isn't anything that humans can do about it. In the United States in particular, also in other parts of the world, though not all of them, I understand that in Chinese culture, for example, there isn't a ready translation for the word apocalypse, and there isn't a big cultural narrative about the end of the world. But in, in Judeo-Christian, especially Christian-dominated parts of the world, and in the U.S. in particular, there is a tradition of secular apocalypse, where apocalypse Apocalypse gets mobilized, being understood as something that humans have brought upon themselves um, and that will bring about the end of the world such as we know it. Um, the environmental movement in the United States, such as it emerged in the 1960s, used apocalyptic narrative quite extensively. Rachel Carson uses it in her short Fable for Tomorrow at the beginning of Silent Spring. Paul Ehrlich um, and others used it in the, in, the, in the population bomb. Now, some people have said, well, but that just shows how poorly environmental narrative really works in some cases because a lot of these catastrophes haven't happened. And there is one reaction to it that says, yeah, but it didn't come about because they rang the alarm bell and so we did something about it. The other perspective on this that literary critics would tend to take is that it's a mistake to understand apocalyptic narrative as making an accurate prediction about the future in the first place. Apocalyptic stories aren't meant to tell you what's really going to happen. What they're meant to tell you is that you need to change the way you do things. So the more dire and gruesome and horrible the future world is, the stronger is its call for you to reform. So that's what's really behind it. Not accurate 
forecasting. But it is true that apocalyptic narrative showed signs of exhaustion already in the 1970s and wasn't really used that much anymore from the 1980s on. And when scientists such as Stephen Schneider wanted to talk about climate change and used apocalyptic narrative, they used it in a far more judicious and sort of moderated uh, way. So they occasionally did invoke these scenarios but it's not an outright sort of destruction of the world scenario. And so, so, so that's a discourse that has returned now in other kinds of um, uh, talk about, about the environment and about climate change. That apocalyptic discourse is still there. But the other part of discourse that you point to, I think, is also very significant. And that, too, that's, it's specific to climate change, but not only. It's actually one of the most remarkable things, I think, about environmental rhetoric is the way in which it has been able to hook the most trivial details of everyday life to global, even cosmic processes. So the sociologist Stephen Yearly, in a book that came out actually in the early 1990s, he starts his book with saying, how is it possible that um, you know, a yogurt cup can bear the message that by buying this yogurt, you save the planet. I mean, that sort of leap over orders of magnitude from something totally banal and everyday to something epic and heroic, such as saving the planet, is actually, I think, almost more important than apocalyptic narrative. And that's something that's become very ingrained, especially, I would say, in American talk about the environment, that the idea is always what you do in your everyday life, and especially the the food choices you make, the transportation choices you make. You, you mentioned the, the Prius, uh, the energy choices you make, the consumption choices more broadly um, will contribute to changing the environment. Now, that may be true at a certain level. Certainly, if a mass of consumers change their habits, that does exert pressure. And there's a lot of examples where consumer pressure has forced companies, you know, from Walmart to Toyota to change the products that they offer. What gets lost is the part of the problems that cannot be addressed by personal choices, the more legal, institutional, structural changes that need to take place. And that cannot be replaced by you buying a different kind of yogurt. So to take an example that I often discuss with friends in an area of study that I'm also involved in, which is, which is animal studies, the um, horror of what is done to animals in factory farming today uh, equals a lot of the the dismay that we feel when we think about endangered or extinct species. I mean, this is really sort of animal torture on an industrial scale in a lot of ways. And it is also horrendously bad for the environment. But so, so you can you can say, all right, we can make these choices. And then if enough of us become vegetarian, factory farming will stop. Well, for a lot of us in that field, that's really not a realistic way of going about it. So we also need structural change. We need animal cruelty laws to be extended to farm animals. Right now they only apply to other kinds of animals that don't actually include farm animals. Why is that? You know, so obviously we collectively think that cruelty to animals is unacceptable. So 
why are farm animals excluded from that? So, so there you certainly you need structural change, you need laws, you need different regulations of the industry, along with the, the private choices. And so I think the problem with the emphasis on, you know, your small everyday changes is not that it's totally ineffective. I think it can be effective in certain cases. But there are many cases where that alone isn't going to do anything. You've described two narratives as they relate to climate change, the apocalyptic narrative, which kind of is part of in introducing the problem and describing it. And, and you've shown how that's maybe not as simple as we initially think, and there's a lot of nuance there. And then you've talked about this kind of heroic narrative that the individual action can really have some sort of planetary significance. And, and you've talked about structural change as being what's really needed. Well, maybe this is an unfair question, but are there narratives that can be pointed to that could get us to the structural change that you just described as being necessary. You know, what what other narratives about the interactions between human beings and the environment are available? I think that's a that's a big question that a lot of environmentalists are currently thinking about. And it seems to me that there's two things that we need to think about in terms of basic concepts. One is that it can't be a matter of science telling us what we want. Science can tell us how ecosystems function. It can't tell us what kinds of ecosystems we want in the future. So I think uh, we need to shift our environmental discourse even more resolutely than we already have from thinking about what ecosystems used to be and how we can get back to an however defined baseline. And of course, conservationists know very well how problematic that is. You essentially have to pick an arbitrary moment in time and try to work back to that. Um, so instead of working back to some however imagined baseline, the conversation needs to be about what kinds of ecosystems, what kind of world we want for the future and to work toward that. And that's, I think, a harder discussion to have because there won't be any outside values. We're going to have to go face to face with people who say, I'd really rather have a richly diverse amount of consumption than a richly diverse natural world. We might confront other people whom we might find it even harder to um, talk back to who will say, yes, we like biodiversity and we would love for all the biodiversity we currently have to be sustained in the future. But if you look at sub-Saharan Africa, it's very hard to imagine that we're going to lift millions of people out of truly abject poverty and misery without sacrificing even more of the currently existing ecosystems and biodiversity. Is that a trade-off we're willing to make? Are environmentalists willing to trade certain of their beloved species for the well-being of humans? Now, this is not a, a trade-off that we may have to make in all cases. In some cases, that may be a false choice. And in that case, our task will be to show how both can be attained. But environmentalists have sometimes, in my view, too simplistically claim that we can have everything that's on the plate. I think that's not realistic. I think we will have to make certain very hard choices. And for me, one of the hardest things about being an environmentalist is to know that some of the things I most love, some of the birds I most love, some of the landscapes I most love, will probably be diminished or disappear over the next hundred years or so. 
But I try to keep that in perspective and try to also see what that might mean for the people who live in those landscapes, for the people who directly or indirectly contribute to the disappearance of those species, and also to see how their lives might be improved in certain ways. And I think keeping that in balance is a real challenge. The other thing that I would want to bring up is... Um, is the notion of the Anthropocene, which you guys have chosen for your radio series, which is an, a really kind of an odd concept. Um, the idea in the Anthropocene is that now we're not just transforming biology, but meteorology, the basic functioning structures of even the inanimate planet. So we have become geological agents. And that kind of era deserves um, a term like that. That's a term that you choose when you want to mark rupture. And I think more than anything, what the rupture is that Crutzen and Sturmer point to with their term is the sense that from here on out, we will self-consciously live in a world where nature is not the other out there, but where nature is created by us. So we will live in an environment that is synthetic in the sense of, not in the sense of plastic or chemicals, although that may be true too, um, for certain parts of it, but even the most quote-unquote natural parts of the environment will be human-made in some fundamental sense. And I think in that respect, to me, the notion of the Anthropocene is useful, but that's something to think about um, I think for us, as we think about what the environment means, I mean, the environment is really not what's out there or other to us. It is from here on out more so even than in the past. It is what we make it. And that, I think, actually requires a fairly fundamental rethinking of our role as humans, the way we conceive of such things as the human as a species. What are the narratives that can help us think about that? Well, from a more narrowly, not so much philosophical or anthropological, but, but literary viewpoint, this is one of the reasons that I'm an avid reader of science fiction. Um, science fiction is an epic genre in the sense that it is about world-making, about large-scale problems and large-scale transformations. And science fiction, especially in its utopian and dystopian variants, I think actually does offer a lot of templates for thinking about what might bring about change and what does not bring about change. So, um, And science fiction in odd ways has made its way into mainstream literature in all kinds of ways. Um, and I think the reason for that is that it now has become, from being sort of a fairly marginal genre for a bunch of geeks and, you know, young men obsessed with outer space, that actually over the last 30, 40 years has mutated into one of the prime genres in which we think about our own bodies, about technology, and about the future of nature. Thanks so much, Professor Heise, for coming to speak with us today. Thank you, Aaron. This was a lot of fun. Thanks for listening to this episode of Generation Anthropocene. We want to thank all of the students and subjects who contributed to this project. And you can find the full-length interviews at our website, stanford.edu slash group slash Anthropocene. Thanks to Maserati for letting us use their song, Monoliths. A very special thanks to co-producer Tom Hayden 
for feedback, guidance, and inspiration. Thanks also to Julie Kennedy and the Earth Systems Program. And thanks to KZSU Studio Stanford, where all of our interviews were recorded. History is accelerating, and you're a part of it too. Where would you draw the line?